you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Psalms this morning. <clears throat> Today we'll begin a summer series, Walking Through the Psalms. We will take 13 different psalms over the next 13 weeks, and we will walk through and, and uh, preach through, study through uh, the book of Psalms. Psalms have uh, a wide variety. Uh, there are a wide variety of types of psalms. There's liturgical psalms, uh, there are uh, psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, there are wisdom psalms. The psalms is a tremendously rich book that's compiled by several different authors that has been given to us as really a gift from God uh, through his word or in his word. So as we prepare to read and to look into the psalms, would you pray with me? Father, as we come before you this morning, we come desiring to hear from you in your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak into our hearts and our lives. And God, that you would shape us, mold us, transform us. And we pray, God, that you would teach us how to live godly lives pursuing you. Lord, that you would remind us of this this need and the grace that you have given us in order to do so. And we ask, Father, that you would guard us from from pride, guard us from temptation to sin, guard us, Lord, from thinking too much of ourselves that we might not gain and grow in your word. So we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word and our minds to comprehend the truth of your word, our hearts to love the truth of your word and our lives to live out the truth of your word. So I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Two Ways to Live. And this morning we'll be looking in Psalm 1. We'll begin our time with Psalm 1. But before we do, I just wanted to give us a brief introduction to the book of Psalms. What are the Psalms? Well, the Psalms are a collection of prayers and praise that have been pinned to music or that were pinned to music. They were poems written by many, many different men, several different men, rather, who who give us a cross section of really God's revelation to Israel and Israel's response in faith to God. They enable us to look upon our brothers from some twenty five hundred years ago and and look upon our brothers and sisters in faith and experience how God's people in the past related to God. For it's in the book of Psalms that we have not necessarily God's word spoken to us, though it is we have God's people speaking his word back to him. And so in the Psalms, we see expressions of praise. We see expressions of faith and expressions of sorrow and frustration. And the Psalms reveal a very real and practical side of human emotion before God. We see in them reverence for God, and we see a very real struggle for faith in the midst of great adversity and trials in life. The Psalms are valuable for us as believers today, as a community of faith today. They're valuable for at least five reasons, just quickly. Number one, they teach us about prayer. They teach us about prayer. Prayer is man's communion with God. It's how we come before him and cry out to him. We, we vocalize the inward uh, desires of the heart. 
we align our wills with the Lord. And so we see that over and over again through the Psalms. The Psalms serve as a guide to worship. We see the liturgy of God's people from the first five books of the Bible fleshed out very practically in the book of Psalms. The Psalms demonstrate how we can relate honestly to God. Right? In the Psalms, we, we see the psalmist crying out to God for mercy because of his sin. We see that in Psalm 51. He, David cries out to the Lord, have mercy on me, O my God, a wretched sinner. We see it in Psalm 42 in a, a cry out for, for, for the downcast soul, a, a psalm of lamentation where the psalmist is saying, O Lord, why is my soul downcast within me? We see very real life, practical life. Fourthly, the Psalms demonstrate the importance of reflection and meditation in the life of God's people. We are to reflect upon our relationship with God, upon the things in which God has done for us, the things which we have seen God do and work in our life, in our community of faith. We're to look back upon those things and remember those because those are markers along the journey that remind us of how God has been good to us, but also to meditate upon God. We meditate upon his word. We're to meditate upon the truth and the hope of his word. And then fifthly, the Psalms inspire the believer with the hope of God's kingdom to come. That is, there is a day when there will be a new state, a new, a new state of justice, a new righteousness that is ours. A, there, there will be a, an, an eternal joy, an eternal bliss. There will be a sinlessness and a perfection on the day that Christ calls us to be with him for eternity. And so these are five reasons, minimally five reasons. There, there are more, but five reasons why the Psalms are important for us to study and why it's important for us to, to have them as a regular part of, of our life as a community of faith and as individuals who approach and read God's word. Jewish tradition views the Psalter as the second Pentateuch echoing the first the Pentateuch, it means five. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's said that Moses is the one he's looked at as the traditional author. And so as Moses gave five books of law to Israel, so David gave five books of Psalms to Israel, the tradition states. So David's pictured really as kind of Israel's Mozart transforming their liturgy of worship from the first five books of the Bible into a musical orchestra or opera. He places it on the stage of the temple and says, here's the, the practical way that life is lived out and, and fleshed out before God. And he gives us in it five beautiful scenes and five books that's ordered around the worship of God and his unfailing, unrelenting, redemptive plan. And so the Psalter is divided. It's divided into five books. The book of Psalms, the Psalter, it's divided into five different books. Each book ends with a similar doxology. And it says at the, end of each, at the end of each one, it says, Praise be to the Lord forever. And gives a double congregational amen. So you can go through and you can look that up later. You don't have time to look it up now. Book one is Psalm 1 through 41. And book one introduces the Davidic covenant, highlighting the promise and hope of God's eternal king. He is coming. Book two is Psalm 42 through 72. 
And it continues the hope of the Davidic covenant. It celebrates the hope of the true Davidic king looking forward to the one who is called Messiah. So as we walk through the Psalms, we see this kind of played out on a macro scale, on a big picture scale. Psalm 72, 1 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Psalm 72, 17, may his name endure forever and his fame continue as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. You see how it points forward to the divine king, the eternal king, the promised Messiah. Book three is Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. And book three is known as the dark book of the Psalter. It views God's covenant as a broken and abandoned covenant of the past. It's as if there's this this ebb and flow throughout the book as these psalms have been put together and edited together. It contains the only psalm of the entire Psalter where prayer doesn't result in praise. Psalm 88. It's the lowest point of the Psalter reflecting an overwhelming theme of the failed covenant posing the question, where is God? Why is God silent? How do we go on as God's people when God is silent? Psalm 88 ends in verse 18 with this. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Ever felt like that? Even throughout the Psalms, there's this ebb and flow of of realness, of humanity expressing their hurt, their frustration, their emotions before God. And so the third book ends with the anguished cry of God's people representing the darkest part of Israel's history. Psalm 89, verse 49 says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where's it at? Verse 51 says, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. In other words, at the end of the third book of the Psalter, They're saying there is no king who will lead us, who will fight for us, who will lead your people, O God. There is no king to lead us. But book four, book four presents a new hope. And in book four, we see Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. And in book four, it presents this new hope that in in, in book three, there was the absence of a king. They fall back on their heritage beginning Uh, So they fall back on their heritage and and they look back to the time beginning with the prayer of Moses. So Psalm 90 verse 1 begins a prayer of Moses where he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So book four begins, it opens up with this hope. They're looking back on the eternal king and they're crying out to him. He is their help in ages past, and he is their hope in years to come. They've climbed out of the darkness and despair from from book three and book four, and they've begun the ascent of praise. Psalm 106, verse 47 ends with this. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and, and give praise to you. 
And then book five opens closely related to the way that book four closes. It opens with a declaration of praise. Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. Psalm 107.3 says he gathered us from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. In the final book, we see the hope of the greater king pointing us to Christ. Psalm 110.1 is quoted in Matthew 22.44 by the Lord Jesus. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Israel shouts in praise to the king whom the builders have rejected. Quoted in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. He is the, the capstone. He is the stone that the builders have rejected. And the New Testament authors take these psalms and they apply them to Christ, our Savior, and point us to see the fulfillment of God's people and fulfillment of, of, of the worship of God's people culminating in the person and the work of Christ. So Psalm 146 through 150 ends with this exclamatory note of praise. Go this week. Make it a point this week to go and to read, if you've never read before, Psalm 146 through Psalm 150, all at one time. Just sit there and read through it. It's an anthem of praise to the Lord. Praise God. Praise God in His faithfulness. And they celebrate. So this is how... This is how the the Psalms have been put together in the book that we know as Psalms or what we would call the Psalter. And so our journey through Psalms over the next 13 weeks will explore the biblical worldview of two ways to live. Psalm one is the preface setting the stage for the entire Psalter. It's a wisdom psalm. And it invites us to implore wisdom by meditating on God's word to receive God's blessings. It begins with a fitting pronouncement of blessing upon the righteous and inviting all who journey through its pages to ascend God's holy hill, to come before him with clean hands and a pure heart, not lifting our soul to another, but trusting in the one true God, the divine creator, the one who has sent the Messiah. And for the psalmist, the one who will send the Messiah. And so this morning, as we read through Psalm 1, 1 through 6, I want to invite you, if you found your place in Psalm 1, say amen. Follow along as I read. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want us to see two points this morning. The way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. It's pretty straightforward in this psalm. As we see the way of the godly in Psalm 1, verse 1, the psalmist begins by noting Blessed is the man, or blessed is the man. This word blessed or blessed, it's 
a plural word. And it literally means blessings upon blessings. Or as one popular TV personality would, would say today, happy, happy, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It means to go straight. It means to advance or to to set right. It introduces the idea of the the walk of one's life. Blessed is this one who does not walk in this way, but walks in this way. The overarching theme of the first psalm points us to see that the one who walks in God's way will experience the certainty of God's blessings multiplied. And so the blessed man, the happy man, the blessed woman, the happy woman is one who guards life. The godly is one who guards their life. The godly guard their life in verse one. They don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Notice all the activities of life are are covered here. They're considered here. The whole way of the wicked and the ungodly is corrupt. And so to walk in the counsel of the wicked means to be influenced and to be governed by an unbiblical worldview. This is the counsel of the ungodly, of the wicked. It speaks of operating our lives according to the philosophy of the world. We know all too well the fallenness of creation, even in our own flesh, which tempts us to reject God's rule, tempts us to replace his authority and rule over our lives with our own authority and rule over our lives. And this is the counsel of the wicked. This is what the wicked would counsel us to do. In most recent days, we've seen this play out, I think, in the Bruce Jenner controversy. The philosophy of the world is on full display Do what makes you feel good. Embrace the real you. The you who you want to be. Embrace that one. The reality is what Bruce Jenner has done is sinful. He's distorted the goodness of God's creation in an unnatural way. Many have voiced their approval for him. But brothers and sisters, this is the counsel of the ungodly. This is the way of the world. It's wrong. It's sinful. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Any attempt to justify sin in any way is wrong. It's anti-God in its approach and perspective on life. And from God's perspective, any sin is condemnable. It is worthy of condemnation. And so we see the progression of one who walks in the counsel of the wicked will soon find himself or herself standing in the way of sinners. I remember as a young man hearing my dad tell me, be careful who you run around with because they'll lead you down the wrong path if you're not careful. This is what he was saying. Don't stand in the way of sinners. This is so true, isn't it? Proverbs 1.8, wisdom literature, Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are graceful garland for your head and, and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Don't do it. 
I would have done well to heed my father's advice. I'll never forget the day that the police showed up at the high school where I was attending. And I was called to the principal's office. And when I got into the principal's office, the police were there. I had been hanging out with friends one evening at one of their homes. And some of his friends who were from out of town were coming in to meet the group and to hang out. Well, we had gone somewhere, left one of our friends there to greet him. And we had come back. They had come and gone. And they had beaten one of our friends severely. And so in a fit of rage, my friends began taking it out on a car that they had left behind, beating this car, smashing it, vandalizing it. And although I knew that it was wrong what they were doing, I didn't stop them. Instead, I reached through the shattered window and I grabbed about five or six cassette tapes, whatever would fit in my hand, and I ran off. Well, for five cassette tapes, I received $500 fine and 40 hours of community service. I had plenty of time to think about the wrongfulness of my actions. It should have been a wake-up call for me, but I would spend many more days standing in the way of sinners. Before the Lord would get my attention and I would repent and return and begin pursuing the way of God. I began learning the value of 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what does righteousness have in common with wickedness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And while we apply that passage to marriage early on, we also apply that to our relationships. And I think it's fitting for the counsel that we receive here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. You see, we need to guard our lives. We need to guard who we run around with, young people. We need to guard who we befriend in a close way. We need to guard our actions, our lives. You know, the sinner has a particular way of life that's lived in transgression against God. The drunkard, the thief, the fornicator, the adulterer, the covetous. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, if we're not careful we can fall very easily and slip into the way of the ungodly. And it begins with accepting the counsel of the ungodly, accepting the counsel of the wicked. And before long, a person can find themselves not only accepting the counsel of the wicked and, and standing in the way of sinners, but also sitting in the seat of scoffers. You see, there's a progression to this way of life. The seat of scoffers describes one who, who mockingly looks upon God and looks upon others, even sits in the seat of judgment upon or over others. They have no regard for God's way. They're arrogant, prideful, full of strife and quarreling. And so there's a negative warning given to us in this verse. And the negative warning is, don't follow the way of the ungodly counsel. Guard your life. Guard your steps. Guard your sitting, your, wherever you go. Guard it. Guard wherever you are. This is the counsel of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, right? All these 
ways, in every activity of life, the godly person is guarding their life. Secondly, the godly governs their mind. The words used to describe the godly here in verse 2 are delight and meditate. Is God's word the governing influence in your life? Do you turn to God's word for wisdom, for instruction, for counsel? Do you delight in God's word? Look at what he says in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. You know, I, I delight in my wife. I'm not just saying that to get brownie points. I really do. I, I enjoy being in her presence. This is the reality. The things we delight in are the things that we enjoy. That which we enjoy, we delight in. And so to delight in my wife means I I desire to be in her presence. I thoroughly enjoy being with her. And so he says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, the law of the Lord isn't just the Ten Commandments, as if we're just to delight being in the Ten Commandments. And, And it's more than just the first five books of the law, known as the Torah. All right. It's more than that. It, it's broader. It speaks of enjoying God's ways. It means I desire to submit my life to God's rule. I willingly submit my life to being governed by God's word. And it goes on further, not just to delight in, but I meditate on his law day and night. To meditate means to think on, right? To listen long. It, it speaks of evaluating my life against the truth of God's word. Brothers, this is, this is what God is calling us to. The psalmist is saying, here's the portrait, the life of the godly. Here's what they do. They meditate on his law day and night. In other words, it is the consistent endeavor of the life of the godly to think upon, to memorize, to chew on, to listen long to God's word. We are to soak in his word. Joshua chapter one, verse eight says this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You know, this is why Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians chapter three, verse two, set your mind on things that are above. Not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here's the portrait of the believer's life. We are to set our minds upon God's ways. How do we do that? Well, we do it through his word. We do it through godly counsel, through coming to his word. And so in doing this, we're guarding our minds and our lives by seeking God's word. So we govern our minds through the word of God. Well, thirdly, the godly endures through all seasons. We see this in verse three. It's a rich metaphor. I mean, this is a it's a rich metaphor telling us. Giving us a picture of the life of the believer. We're like trees enduring, beneficial, beautiful. Purposeful. So he says he's like a tree planted by streams of water. That is, he's planted near the source of his nourishment. The water keeps the tree fruitful. 
You know, Jesus uses this rich imagery of the life-giving water of the word in John's gospel. In John chapter 4, verse 14, he says, The water that I will give you, it will become in you a spring welling up to eternal life. Paul uses this this imagery of, of water to speak of the husband washing or purifying his bride with the water of the word in Ephesians 5. And this really is a picture of what Christ does for the church washing the church with the water of the word. And here the psalmist gives us this picture of of the believer, of the godly one, being like this tree that is flourishing. Why? Because it's planted by the streams of water. Its life, its vitality is dependent upon the water. It gets its nourishment from the water. And this water, it is the word of God. Notice about this tree, it's an evergreen, right? Its leaf doesn't wither. Amidst all the changing seasons of life, any trials or adversity that comes, listen to what it says. Its leaf does not wither. All that he does, he prospers. In all seasons of life, he, she is always giving the the picture of being full of life. And then we see that even even in the midst of this, God is the one who controls the seasons. He is the one that causes the tree to be nourished and to to bear fruit in right season. This is a portrait of your life and my life. That God is at work in and through us to work to bear his fruit for his glory. As we faithfully follow him as the godly walk according to the godly way. And so the way of life of the godly, the way of God's blessing is put forth here. The blessed man, the happy man, the happy woman is one who guards his or her life against the ways of the world. Get this, by meditating on God's word and his commands, they're nourished by God's word and they engage in God's work. They delight in the things of God and true satisfaction is experienced in living a life spent on making God's name and God's ways known in the world. So all that he does prospers. Everything. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's not the promise here of economic prosperity, but but the promise of an eternal dwelling in the presence of God. Spurgeon said it this way, it's not outward prosperity which the Christian most desires and values. It is soul prosperity which he longs for. See, the promise of prosperity is the promise of knowing God, the sovereign who is over time and creation, the one who holds our days in his hand. He's created all things for our enjoyment that we might glorify him through godly lives of worship and praise this is the way of the godly it's a life lived under his authority and according to his commands we're also told of the way of the ungodly the way of the ungodly is seen in verses four through six it's mapped out there in fact verse four begins the wicked are not so in our english translations but it's really a double negative here emphasizing the the, the great transition, not so for the wicked, not so. That which has described the godly way cannot be described the, the way of the wicked, the ungodly. The ungodly are those who are without God in the world. 
He isn't their helper because they don't know him. They haven't been given the spirit of adoption whereby they cry out, Abba, Father, speaking to God in relationship as his children. The ungodly don't cling to God in the purposes of their heart. They're contrasted with the tree. In fact, in verse 4, it says they're like chaff. We've got an eternal picture, uh, an enduring picture of the tree planted by water, which takes years to, to flourish and to grow. And we've got the picture of chaff, which is the husk on the wheat, which grows up in a season and then blows away. There's even a there's a, even with the metaphors he gives us, there's this there's this deep understanding of of endurance versus transience. Those who are godly, their way is established. Those who are ungodly, their way is not established. The picture is one of really of judgment because he says their lives are like chaff. They're driven away by the wind. They're useless. The picture is is of the former tossing up the wheat as it's been picked, plucked, put into the bin, and he's sitting there tossing it up, sifting the wheat. And the grain of the wheat falls down when he takes the fork and he throws it in the air, and the husk which covers the wheat, or covered the wheat, that's in the midst of all the wheat, it, it, when it goes up into the wind, the husk is lighter, so it just blows away, and the grain falls back down. And this is the picture that describes the way of the ungodly. It's a negative condemnation. It's a terrible comparison. Their lives are like chaff, useless and driven away by the wind. And so the ungodly are described here for a time that they may know a close association with the godly. But in the end, verse 5 says, the wicked won't stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, what will happen on that day is Fear will lay hold of the ungodly's heart and they'll want to flee. They'll blush with shame and be covered with an overwhelming sense of eternal condemnation. And just like the parable of the weed and the tares in Matthew 13, 30, there will come a day when the when both of them are, are gathered up before the Lord and judgment will be given. And the wheat are brought into the presence of God and the tares are eternally cast out and burned. So the promise of verse six will be fulfilled where he says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, the ungodly will perish. You see, the way of the godly is known by the Lord. The way of the godly is the way of the righteous. And God knows that way. Ecclesiastes 11:5 says, as you do not know the way of the spirit, in the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. God knows, but we don't. John 3, 8, Jesus talking with Nicodemus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, he says, will perish the way of the righteous is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Scripture says, for he came to fulfill all righteousness. And he came and accomplished that which we could not. He came and lived a perfect, perfect, sinless life to redeem humanity in our fallenness, in our sinfulness. 
And though he lived a perfect life, he died the death of a sinner on the cross. And in doing so, he bore our shame and our guilt. And he satisfied God's wrath against us. He became our substitute. And in becoming our substitute, he took our place, giving us his righteousness. And here's what the psalmist is saying. Here's how we understand the big picture that the psalmist is saying. The righteous are all who have trusted in God, who have professed faith in Christ Jesus. We've been justified in God's presence because of what Christ has done. And Jesus has declared you righteous before God if you have professed faith and believe in him. But for those who don't know Christ this morning, the scripture testifies that there are two ways to live. And the way that you're living today is the way of the ungodly. And the faith that all the ungodly will one day suffer is a life outside of the presence, the beautiful presence of God. It is a life of condemnation eternally. And those who don't profess and trust in Christ and live their life in Christ will experience the way of the perishing and eternal condemnation. They will be like the chaff driven away by the wind. So there really are two ways to live. There is the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, or the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. Notice there's no middle road here. There is the way of Christ or the way of the world. Which one characterizes our lives this morning? Which one characterizes your life this morning? Brothers and sisters, are you guarding your life? The counsel you receive, the place you stand, the place you sit. Are you governing your mind? Delighting and meditating upon God's word. Is your life like the tree bearing fruit for Christ in right season, but green because you're being nourished by the word? Or is your life described like the wicked one this morning, the ungodly, the one without Christ? Listen, there's there's only one hope in life, and that is to know Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified, the one who was buried, the one who was resurrected. And ascended to the right hand of the Father that has given life for all who profess faith and believe upon him. And if you don't know this Jesus Christ as Savior this morning, I want to invite you to confess him as Lord in your heart by repenting of your sin and believing upon him. The one who has come to bring salvation to all who profess faith in him. And this morning, believer. If you've recognized an area of your life where you have been suffering and not growing in Christ, maybe not guarding your own mind or or maybe not guarding your life, not bearing fruit for Christ because you're not being plugged in through the word. If that describes you this morning, would you repent? And then finally, church, let me encourage us. Let us be like the tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and its leaves never wither. May that be the characterization of our lives as God's godly people living godly lives lives for his glory and for the good of all people. Would you pray with me? Father, in your word, you meet us 
exactly where we are. There may be some this morning who don't even know where to begin to cry out to you. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would lead them. Psalm 23, that you're our shepherd. Would you lead them as the good shepherd? Bring them to refreshing water. Refresh their souls with the food of your word. Lord, for those who don't truly know you, have never confessed you, I pray that you would you would strengthen them. You would give them the understanding to hear your call by your spirit, that they would surrender their lives to you, confessing you as Lord. Repenting of sin, and I pray, Father, for for your your people today. All of us are at different places. I pray that you would strengthen us to be like this portrait of the tree that we see in Psalm one. Lord, let us be about pursuing godliness in all that we do, in every area of our lives, in work, in play, in study, in prayer, in everything, God. Let us be about pursuing you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.